0: anticipating the unintended, number 126, policy WTF, our democracy in wave 2, this section looks at egregious public policies, policies that make you go WTF, did that really happen, it is difficult to write anything with clarity, when almost every second message you read, is a cry for oxygen, ICU beds, rimdesivir or plasma, this isn't an exaggeration, This is the reality of every urban Indian today. Yet they are lucky. The ability to amplify is itself a privilege. There are many others going silently into the night, mourned by their voiceless kin but unnoticed, uncounted, and unmourned by the state. Because it is inconvenient to even acknowledge them. This is a difficult moment for India. It is not easy to write with perspective and acuity about our criminal neglect of lives, while retaining empathy for those on the front lines of this battle. So, excuse me if I ramble a bit in this edition. No information, no democracy. There's a lot made about democracy in India. If we were to believe our own hype that is, we have a rambunctious multi-party system. Our elections are festivals celebrating people's choices. The Janata is the Janadan, apparently. For years, the more cynical among us have seen through this charade. Today, the despairing shallowness of these claims are laid bare for all us to see. At its heart, democracy is about availability of information. As information became more accessible, and moved with greater speed in the industrial age, societies had to adopt democratic norms. Other choices could only be coercive. Because information is power. It helps you compare, to make informed choices, and to hold those in power accountable. It is no surprise then among the first thing any authoritarian regime does, is to control information. Information makes democracy tick. Without it, democracy is just a periodic voting exercise. The remarkable thing about India's pandemic response is the sheer absence of information available to the public. Even the Supreme Court cannot get direct answers out of the government. Link available on screen. The number of vaccines we have purchased in advance, the current stockpile we have, the monthly rollout plan we have in mind, or the price of the vaccines. Nothing is known. The anticipated number of infections we might have for every district in the country, the future need for oxygen, ventilators, doctors, healthcare workers or technicians in each district, the real mortality rates, the data on genome testing, the amount of foreign aid, or where it is going, the list is endless. There are no past datasets, there's barely any data being collated now, and there's no forecast for us to plan a better response future even as we see the pandemic spreading to rural areas in India. We don't have a daily dashboard, or targets against which we monitor our response to a virus that's knocked us over administrative incompetence and deliberate official suppression have brought us to this parched information landscape. This lack of information in the midst of a catastrophe renders democracy void. Only a chimera remains. Every living moment is filled with anxiety, because you are a step away from being drawn into the COVID apocalypse. You cannot plan even for the week ahead. You cannot judge the actions of the government, because there's hardly any information, You read a news report about foreign aid gathering dust at the airports, and the next day the partisans of the government point to another report on how things are moving quickly. In this seesaw battle between information and disinformation, in the midst of this epistemological fog, we have to find the right direction. Democracy is about choice in the hands of people. Choices are made by weighing the arguments put up by either side. Arguments need information, cut the information supply, and democracy gasps for breath. It is not just patients that are running out of oxygen in today's India. There won't be any reckoning. This also makes the next point that I want to discuss almost irrelevant. Is the handling of the second wave a moment of reckoning for PM Modi and his government? In any normal functional democracy with rational voters and a modicum of opposition, it should have been. But I'm not sure about it happening in India. First, the lack of transparency or information makes it easy for the government to spin narratives that take away the heat from it. We have already seen some remarkable feats of narrative building in the past month. Millie listing them down inspires awe within me for the narrative entrepreneurs building them. But it also boggles my mind on how these logically weak or inconsistent narratives aren't countered with vigor. I have made a simple table that you can find on screen to reflect this any reasonable person with an open mind will come to a similar conclusion as I have reached in the table above. But people lose their sense of perspective while thinking about politics. This is an old problem. Why do people find it so difficult to let go of their political beliefs? I don't want to go into either the philosophy or the neuroscience of this issue in this edition. Someday I will. The short answer is this. People who have agency, in India those that are educated, employed and with means, have a disproportionate belief in the soundness of their judgment. They consider they have arrived at their political beliefs using reason, and on their conviction of what's wrong with the world. This process is deeply personal. It becomes a part of their identity. This causes them to invest emotionally into any politician or a political party, that furthers this view. This is different from familial or religious ties that are accidents of birth. This is a product of your own logical mind. A mind that, all things considered, is superior to others. This is the reason, why families or old friendships cleave on political beliefs. Even blood is thinner than political faith, because the political is personal and vice versa. In India of today, there is a large coalition of people who have invested deeply in PM Modi and his vision of India. This coalition is useful, to study to understand why there won't be a reckoning despite the abject failure of this government, to provide the basic right of life to its citizens. First, there are those in the coalition who believe we wasted the first 67 years of our independence pursuing wrong economic and social policies. Merit was stymied, enterprise was killed, and a rigid bureaucracy along with a venal state held us back. Among this lot, there are those who are disappointed already with PM Modi today, and sit on the fence. The other side of the fence, doesn't make for great company either. The great hope there is in the form of Mamata Banerjee whose only virtue is that she defeated the BJP governance isn't exactly her forte. This is the kind of political thinking that's got us here. Anyway, the greater number in this section of the coalition are the ones who respond to the system is all flawed message. So, PM Modi needs more time to smash this system to smithereens. He is forever the outsider for them. Then we have the garden variety bigots of various hues who believe India is held back because the minorities in tandem with global forces are undermining it. They hark back to india's glorious past and its abiding civilizational values these are the consumers and distributors of the millions of fake messages churned out by the whatsapp factories the general consensus here is a thousand years of foreign rule set a superior but somewhat naive race back our path to salvation lies in showing these foreigners their place while going back to those civilizational values in pm modi they find a man who will set us on the path to deliverance And the final section includes those who have a nuanced view that our civilizational values can be blended with modernity to arrive at a modern conception of indian state that's different from the neruvian one indeed i think this can be a worthwhile project but it needs a philosophical and cultural articulation of our values that is in sync with the current reality of a diverse india and a modern world and it has to be compelling enough to rewrite the constitution in a way that won't fracture society To draw an analogy, it needs clear thinking of the likes of Payne, Burke, or Montesquieu with the civilizational understanding of Vivekananda or Aurobindo. That's a tall order. Instead they have the likes of Sadhguru and Rajiv Malhotra to aid their efforts. In any case, in PM Modi, they have the anti-Neru at the helm. And that's good enough for now. The despair about the future of India that's often written by a section of commentary these days might be overblown. We have lived through terrible political and economic choices for many centuries. We will survive, not thrive. And that's tough to swallow. We had a window of opportunity to realize our potential as a nation and to improve the lives of our people. We could have been a contender. It is all in the past now. But to most Indians today it doesn't matter. A tendentious reading of the past and a majoritarian fantasy of the future has clouded our judgment. Form takes precedence over substance. Appearances matter more than truth. No surprise then to discover the final counter to any political argument in India today is to Modi India policy watch. What matters and what doesn't? Insights on burning policy issues in India. The union government has received a lot of flack over its criminal negligence in managing the pandemic response. It deserves nearly all of it, and more. We have written about this over several editions today however i want to look at three incorrect or at least problematic frames being used to blame the government's pandemic response shoddy as it is the intention is to ask the right questions only then can we hope for the right answers incorrect frame and in number one blame vaccine diplomacy as the cases have skyrocketed and vaccine supplies have plummeted india's vaccine diplomacy has come under the scanner once again The question doing the rounds is that did India commit a grave mistake in gifting vaccines to other nation-states? With the benefit of hindsight, the dominant narrative today is yes, by prioritizing vaccine exports over domestic inoculation, India did a disservice to its own people. I disagree. In addition, number 102, I made a realist case for India's vaccine diplomacy. I stand by that view. The original sin of the union government of course was that it didn't place enough vaccine orders and hasn't done so even until now rewind to february and you'll notice how complacent the government was of having conquered the virus had peaked it seemed that the government would sail through a dying pandemic with a snail-paced vaccination campaign it is with this line of thinking that vaccine diplomacy began another way of thinking about vaccine diplomacy is to think of its opportunity cost At the current vaccination rate, India would have had 5 additional days of supplies had it not given any of the nearly 10.7 million doses as gifts to other countries. In fact a majority of the deliveries, nearly 35 million, have been under commercial terms between manufacturers and other countries. It's likely that countries would have not helped India in the current crisis the way they did, had India blocked exports of vaccines earlier. Holding the union government accountable for its mistakes is important. Equally important is identifying what the exact mistake was by internalizing that India was wrong in extending its help to other countries in its own time of help, we would be learning the wrong lesson. Such heuristics tend to stick around for long in the Indian strategic affairs community. Try arguing for developing overseas operations military capability of any kind, and the idea will be shot down citing the IPFK failure in Sri Lanka more than three decades ago. It's important that vaccine diplomacy isn't perceived as another IPKF moment. This pandemic is as much about learning the right lessons as it is about not learning the wrong ones. Incorrect frame number 2, Dada government has no money. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. How we love this story. Every ineffectual leader in the times of crises gets equated to Nero. This time round, the charge of callousness rests on the government's plan of redeveloping India's central administrative area at a reported cost of nearly 20,000 crore rupees. The critics argue, can't the government redirect some of this money for increasing the number of hospital beds, oxygen plants, and vaccine procurements? Problems that are dire and important today. From a political perspective, this line of attack probably makes for a powerful narrative. I wouldn't know. But wearing a policy analyst's hat, this logic makes little sense. That's because the government has enough monetary resources at its command for fighting the pandemic and building a new parliament, both... Facts of the matter first. The 20,000 crore rupees amount is to be spent over multiple years, of which less than 2,000 crore rupees is being spent this financial year. For perspective, this is 0.05% of the union government's fiscal year 21-22 budget. Moreover, such arguments asking for diverting money from one purpose to another play in the hands of the government by inadvertently giving it safe passage, as long as it can show monetary constraints. The truth of course is that the Union Government has enough options at hand to beg, borrow, and steal money for fighting the pandemic. The state as an institution is unparalleled. It doesn't easily run out of money like households do. If it does, it always has the option of monetizing deficit, albeit at the risk of future inflation. And if there ever was a case to be made for monetizing deficit, a raging pandemic would definitely make the cut. After all, what is the use of a Democratic-Republican state that cannot spend to protect the life of its citizens dying by the thousands every day? In fact, after a lot of hullabaloo about how asking the states to procure vaccines from manufacturers might lead them to fiscal troubles, most states, including low-income ones such as Bihar and Odisha, have promised free vaccines to all adults in the 18-45 to age group. As an example, we estimated that Karnataka would require approximately 3,900 crore rupees to vaccinate all its residents in the 18 to 45 age group for free, of which 31,76 crore rupees can be borrowed immediately by using RBI's way and means advance facility. Don't listen to government excuses over money in these times. P.S. As far as the Central Vista Redevelopment Project is concerned, India would indeed need a new parliament a few years down the line once the delimitation of constituencies takes place in 2026. This is not a new demand and India is capable enough of funding the redevelopment of a small pocket in Delhi even as it fights a pandemic. P.P.S. It beats me why the government could not postpone the Central Vista Redevelopment Project until the second wave peaked. That would have been prudent. Incorrect frame in number 3 the liberalized and accelerated phase 3 strategy is to be blamed. The move to allow state governments, private hospitals, and industrial establishments to procure vaccine doses directly from the manufacturers, has been under fire ever since it was announced. The criticism is on two counts. 1. This approach would lead to confrontation between state governments seeking better deals from manufacturers. 2. The union government can use its scale to strike better deals with both domestic and foreign manufacturers. The solution suggested is that the union government must incentivize vaccine production, procure all these vaccines from manufacturers, distribute them using a transparent formula to the states, and provide all vaccines for free. Moreover, do all this in mission mode. The problem with this criticism is that it heavily overestimates the union government's capacity. To expect a government that couldn't strike advance contracts with a handful of manufacturers to do all the above is to ignore the constraint that inadequate state capacity imposes. From a citizen's perspective, to expect a different result, while repeating the same failed strategy doesn't make sense. I suppose most people think, that the real cause of the government's ineffectiveness is either the lack of money, intent, or both. In reality, the problem is a deeper one of capacity, bureaucratic, intellectual, and implementation. Another deeply ingrained narrative today is that, if Indian governments can organize Kumbh Mela, spot the irony, and nationwide elections, it should also be able to organize a mission-mode vaccination campaign. Unfortunately, it is more likely that vaccinations will continue in the slow burn mode over multiple years and will need to deftly change track as the virus mutates and better vaccine variants get discovered. I doubt a centrally planned system will be able to solve for all this. State capacity should change public policy alternatives we choose and hence it's better to get state governments and private players to get involved. As the number of vaccine candidates increases, more options will become available to these entities, far quicker than a centrally planned system run by a low-capacity union government. As Ajay Shah and Amrita Agarwal write.
1: These changes will unlock the energy from varied Indian buyers, states, firms, communities, and individuals, and increase their accessibility to global supply. Indian buyers need to explore the global vaccine market, and be comfortable paying market prices. As an example, the Israeli government paid $28 per dose, i.e. approximately $2,000 per dose, to Pfizer and Moderna in late 2020, which was 43% higher than the price paid by the US and the EU. This got them rapid vaccine deliveries. They have vaccinated most of their population, and now do not force people to wear masks. If Indian persons, private and public, put down approximately two trillion, i.e. a billion doses at approximately 2,000 per dose, this would yield transformative impact. This is a price worth paying to control the economic and human cost.
0: Of course, this doesn't mean the union government can wash its hands off entirely. It still has an indispensable role to play. One, only it can accelerate domestic production by getting all vaccine manufacturers to share know-how and ramp up capacity. 2. While the global supply squeeze eases, it must create a transparent prioritization mechanism for distributing the scarce supply within states. In sum, to get the right answers, we need to ask the right questions again and again. Homework Reading and Listening Recommendations on Public Policy Matters. Links available on screen. 1. Article Pratip Banu Meta Writing for the Indian Express. If our politics continues as usual over the next few months, the devastation to our lives will be immeasurable. 2. Report. Samanth Subhameyan asks ways India, the world's largest vaccine producer, running short of vaccines.